This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line here from the studios of WAGP and those who are live streaming in different parts of the country or those who listen after the broadcast, we're so glad you can join us as well. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions that they have from God's Word. And if you have a particular issue that you're facing in life or a passage that has challenged you theologically in terms of your understanding or application of it, if we can be of help, all you do need to do is you can call us directly here at the 877-WAGP-980 number or locally 843-525-1859. When you call, you can dictate your question, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply um, go on the air live. We'd love to have you live this morning. A lot of people will email us directly here into the studio, and the email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. Uh, we have a lot of people sometimes, Rick, who are at work, and they're not always able to listen, but they email the question, and then they can listen to it after online. And where do they find that broadcast, the Bible line broadcast? Well, you can just go to our website at wagp.net and then click on the uh, little link there that says... Um, archived programs, and we've got some of the Bible lines, we've got the Mothering from the Heart, Search the Scriptures, we've got all of our locally produced programs there. All right, well, let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, uh, Bill writes, uh, can a person who has become a Christian by professing their belief in Jesus Christ, who formerly had been infatuated with occult matters, become demon-possessed after becoming a believer? I don't think they can, but I've never had clear instruction on this, perhaps influenced by demons, but not indwelled. Well, I think um, Bill makes a good point there oh, at the he's end. he's from Stevens City, Virginia. Oh, from Stevens City, Virginia. All right, Bill, it's an excellent question. No, I do not believe that a true, genuine, born-again Christian can be demon-possessed. And for instance, God says in the book of First John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And he is contrasting, really, the power of God the Holy Spirit with this created being who hates you, who's evil beyond all comprehension, and, of course, his name is Satan. But when someone becomes a child of God, their inner man, their new man, is inhabited by God the Holy Spirit, and it's impossible for a demon or Satan or anyone else to live there. Satan, of course, is the ruler of all demons, and uh, I don't know that you can definitively say that he is literally inhabiting anyone today. The only case in Scripture where he inhabits an individual is that of Judas, where he entered into uh, the person of Judas there in the upper room uh, in order to betray Christ and to enact his crucifixion. But his cohorts, those that 
rebelled with him can inhabit people, but lost people. And it's not an accidental thing. It's usually a conscious uh, choice that people make to engage themselves in the occult. With that said, while it's impossible for a believer to be demon-possessed, it's not impossible for a believer to be oppressed by the evil one, uh, to come under spiritual battle. And the scripture warns us that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work in the heavenly realm. And so as Christians, we're exhorted to put on the full armor of God that we can extinguish the uh, fiery arrows and attacks of the evil one. I taught a course on angelology. There's two parts to it. One is called Angels Among Us, where I deal with uh, those uh, servant angels who never fell, who are forever confirmed in their holiness as servants of God, and they are called ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. That's us, those of us who've met Christ as Savior. But I also do a, uh, the second part of that course is uh, our angels against us, which are fallen angels. Demons are angels. They're typically termed as as, uh, demons in Scripture, but not exclusively. Uh, They are, in the Old Testament, the sons of God, small, uh, the B'nai Elohim, uh, and you see them not only in Genesis, but you also see them in the book of Job, where these fallen messengers are dead set against uh, those who know and love the living God, whether they are Old Testament Jewish believers or those in the church today. So it's a great question, um, and I think sometimes we tend to go to one of two extremes. We either uh, give Satan more credit than he is due— and sometimes uh, Christians uh, view demonology in an unhealthy way. And again, I cover this in depth in my course and even the question that you've asked. And you can find that at searchthescriptures.org. I offer a, basically what's equivalent to a one-year Bible certificate. It's about 34 hours of study. And these are various courses, uh, whether it's bibliology or angelology or eschatology, the study of last things, or pneumatology, the study of the Spirit. These are major theological courses, and I teach it on a master's level. The only thing I don't do is I don't give the assignments on a master's level, or nobody would take it. Uh, It would kill you, but uh, some would take it. But um, but it's very challenging and very in-depth, and you can get that at searchthescriptures.org. You can call Search the Scriptures, and they're 877 number is 877-STS for search the scriptures, 7478. All right, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net. Thomas from Greensburg, North Carolina, writes, Is Catholicism correct in its teachings, and are Jehovah's Witnesses correct in their teachings? All right, those are two interesting groups that you uh, tag together. Let me deal with JWs first. A Jehovah's Witness started in the 1870s in Pennsylvania by a guy named uh, Charles uh, Taz Russell. And uh, he... um, started a Bible study. I think he called it the Millennial Dawn Bible Study. 
And he wrote a number of volumes, uh, five or six volumes, that taught what the essence of what Jehovah's Witnesses are teaching today. Interestingly, um, among the doctrines that he taught, uh, they are in total contradiction to evangelical Christianity today. They are virtually the exact opposite of what God's Word is teaching. Anyway, he spread his teachings through a group called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, where they published their literature, and eventually uh, he died around 1915, 1916, and his best friend, a guy named Judge Rutherford, uh, became his successor. He wrote the final volume in the Millennial Dawn series, and uh, and again, it's a good summary of what they believe. In 1917, when Rutherford, Judge Rutherford, took over, the group split, and uh, formed other groups like Seventh-day Adventists. But what do, in essence, Jehovah's Witness teach today? What did Charles Taz Russell and Judge Rutherford uh, teach in terms of Jehovah's Witness doctrine? Anything but orthodoxy. Uh, it's uh, sheer heresy what they teach. And so they are not Christians in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, think your way through this. They deny that Jesus is God in human flesh. They actually say he's a created being, uh, formerly Michael the Archangel, the highest created being, but they deny his deity and therefore his eternality. Uh, they, of course, reject the doctrine of the Trinity when there are references, even in their false translation to the Spirit, uh, they do not make him a distinct person within the Holy Trinity as the Bible describes him, but this inanimate power of God, just like I have a spirit within me, uh, so God has within him a spirit, but they don't do not view him as a distinct and separate person of the Godhead. Uh, they deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They teach what's called the ransom theory of the atonement. And if, again, I mentioned earlier the Institute of Biblical Studies one of the courses is on Christology, and in the course on Christology, I go through various theories of the atonement uh, that have been taught. There's only one that's true. It's called penal substitution, where Christ's death is uh, as a payment uh, for our sin to satisfy the just demands that God has against us. Uh, they retranslated the Bible. They have a translation called the New World Translation. One of the problems they had for a long time is that people were using what's called the ASV. That was the American Standard Version in 1901, and they used that for a long time. And the challenge with it is there are people who were reading it carefully ended up getting converted and rejected the teaching of Jehovah's Witness. So eventually um, they came up with their own translation called the New World Translation, which has been changed many, many times because uh, what they did is they, they took the New Testament and did a rewrite of it. Uh, they tried to carefully change uh, critical doctrines uh, to suit their belief. And so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, becomes and the Word was a God. And so there they uh, have tried to systematically deny the deity of Christ. And they did that with verses all the way through. The, the challenge was is they kept finding verses that they missed. And in the process, they came up with a number of additions. But think about it. In the realm of the Bible, they say our Bible is corrupted, cannot be trusted. Only the New World Translation can be tr trusted. And I should say, too, 
that they say that only the governing body of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society can interpret the Bible for you. So they deny what Christ clearly taught, what the apostles affirmed, what the Old Testament repeatedly exhorts us to do to study the Scriptures because it is assumed that we can understand and apply the Scriptures to our own life. And so whenever you put some unique authority over the Bible who claim to exclusively be able to interpret it for you. Now, that's not to deny that God raises up Bible teachers, and uh, he does. It's a gift in the body of Christ. There's the gift of teaching. There's the gift of pastor, teacher, and so forth. So God raises up those people. But on the other hand, First John says you have no need of a teacher because you have the anointing. In other words, each of us who are born again have the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit is our ultimate and final teacher. And so if a Bible teacher is saying what is true, then there'll be a certain confirmation within our spirit. Uh, We may not understand everything, but we typically know truth when we see it because we have the mind of Christ. And part of that, of course, is we grow in the mind of Christ in our understanding of Scripture as we study it as we read it. So when they claim that they have the unique ability to interpret the Bible, you know right off they're, they're really on shaky, shaky ground. So they deny the doctrine, I should say, too, of eternal retribution. There is no hell. They deny the authority of the Bible as we have it today. They reject the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and they deny the deity of Jesus. So the solas of the Reformation are all washed away in a false cult known as Jehovah's Witness. Now, you ask with that Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is a little more challenging in that there's a lot of truth in Roman Catholicism. And what the Satan often does is he will mix truth with error, and it makes, um, it makes the group false. So do Roman Catholics affirm the doctrine of the Trinity? Absolutely. Do they affirm the deity of Christ? Absolutely. Do they affirm the virgin conception of Jesus? Absolutely. Um, So they are very orthodox in a number of areas, but one critical area in which they are not orthodox is the area of penal substitution, that the death of Jesus is not a complete and final and eternal payment for our sin. And so Christ's death on the cross is not sufficient to save you, that you, in addition to what Jesus does, must contribute to your salvation through your good works. So rather than making good works simply the fruit and byproduct of salvation, in Roman Catholic theology, they also make it a means to salvation. And that's there's no debate on that. That's uh, the Council of Trent that met from 1542 to 1568. Uh, where these Roman cardinals would get together and they would articulate uh, what they considered to be proper Roman theology, Roman Catholic theology, in deference to the Protestant Reformation. In the Council of Trent, you say, well, that's some ancient council. No, it was reaffirmed at Vatican I. It was reaffirmed at Vatican II. So the Catholic Church has not changed its position. They deny justification by grace alone through faith alone. And if someone denies that, they are teaching what Paul would say in the book of Galatians chapter 1, a different gospel. There, Paul was not adding, you know, 50 or 60 works in addition to the work of Christ uh, that one must do in order to be saved. No, Paul there is 
debating those false teachers who add just a single work, just one work, to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And his argument is to add even a single work to the death, burial, and resurrection is to preach a different gospel, a false gospel, and anyone who does that is to be anathema. So interestingly, you know, sometimes the Roman Catholic Church rags on us evangelical Bible-believing Christians for saying, well, you know, we're attacking Roman Catholicism. Actually, they're the ones attacking us. Uh, They have a whole series of anathemas, several hundred anathemas in the Council of Trent that attacks those who believe the Bible at face value. And they say that we should be damned to hell. Now, there's a lot of wrong things uh, that you could still believe as a Christian and go to heaven on. Sometimes people are new to the faith and they're from a Protestant background or a Catholic background. And when they are converted, they carry with them a lot of false beliefs. But as they grow in Christ, again, because they have a new ability to comprehend Scripture, uh, they begin to change their views on that, and their thinking comes more and more in line with God's Word. So you could believe that the Pope is God's you know, representative man here on the earth and still go to heaven. You could believe in the real presence uh, at what they call communion, uh, transubstantiation, where the elements are literally changed in the body and blood of Christ. You could believe that, you, um, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, Uh, that she had no other children. You could even believe, I suppose, that she was sinless and go to heaven. But you cannot deny the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and go to heaven. So myself, as a newly converted Roman Catholic, I had a lot of false beliefs. Uh, But as I began to grow in Christ, God began to shed those false doctrines. Oh, the Bible doesn't say that? Wow, and I was able to bring my thinking in conformity to the thinking found in Scripture. So, um, and again, what's kind of interesting here in terms of a parallel between the two groups, I mentioned to you that in Jehovah's Witness, they say that the governing body of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is the only body of people who have authority to interpret Scripture, that they have the last word. And therefore, you know, independent thinking is really discouraged. Roman Catholics do the same thing. Uh, They say ultimately the magisterium, the teaching arm of the church, has the final say. And they use a verse grossly out of context where Peter is actually dealing with the inspiration and the infallibility of God's word, that it did not originate with man, but it originated with God Almighty. And they take this verse out of context where they say, well, um, let me just read it to you. Uh, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. So they take verse 20 and they separate it from verse 21 of 2 Peter 1. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, excuse me, is a matter of one's own interpretation. They would say, well, here's Peter, their first pope who says that you cannot personally interpret the Scripture for yourself, and therefore the church must do it for you. And that's why Catholics have never really been encouraged to read the Bible. Uh, In fact, it wasn't until the Living Bible came out that was somewhat of a paraphrase edition of the Bible that they had so many Roman Catholics reading it, they had to kind of back off on that a little bit. But still, they have not changed their view that the only right interpretation of the Word of God 
is that that is done officially by the teaching order of the Roman Church. But the next verse says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. Peter's point is not that you cannot read and study and understand and apply the Bible for yourself. His point is, is that the prophecy of God's word did not originate with men, but these men were inspired. They were moved along by the spirit of God that they were speaking on God's behalf, not on behalf of their own mind. And so there's a, there's a really a big, 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 big difference there. So there's similarities in that what typically characterizes every cult is that they either have some unique ability to interpret the Bible or they have something beyond the Bible, some vision, some dream, some new book, like in Mormonism, the 67th book of the Bible, as they call the Book of Mormon, which I think has 17 books within their book, so to speak. And so they, there's always some extra revelation, and that's even true in Catholicism, that they have extra revelation such that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair on an issue of faith and morals, that he speaks in the same authority as the Bible itself. And this is why the phrase sola scriptura was so fundamental to the Protestant Reformation. No, they said that if the church or any church or any individual goes beyond what the Scripture says and contradicts what God says, adding or subtracting to the Bible, then it should not be embraced. That sola scriptura, the Latin phrase, Scripture alone, must be our final authority. Great question. Uh, I would say to this person, where did he write in from? Uh, uh, let's see. He wrote in from Greensburg. Greensburg, North, North Carolina. Uh-huh. You need to find a Bible-believing church in that area. And if you're having difficulty uh, finding one, call us here at Search the Scriptures, 877-STS-7478, and ask for Pastor Ed, and we'll get you started in trying to find a church either in that town or in an adjacent town that believes God's infallible Word. Very good. It is 22 minutes past the hour, and we have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. How are you doing? Good morning. Thank you. I wanted to start out and say thank you for your ministry. Uh, it's been a blessing to me and my family. And I wanted to ask two questions, if I could. Yes, please. Go ahead. Um, you know, in Judges 19, where it talks about the uh, fellow um, cutting his concubine up yes. and sending it out to the different tribes, mm-hmm. um, I was a little confused on why that was there. And... Another question I wanted to ask you, um, I've seen some things on YouTube where it talks about, like, drums uh, being in the worship service, and, uh, you know, I've noticed that a lot of the churches are going, well, we even have a traditional and a contemporary service, which we go to traditional service with hymns, and, like, I notice it's in the contemporary that, you know, it's kind of dark in there and everything, and it's like, the, the you know, it loud and stuff like that is there something wrong with that or am i just being kind of weird and i'll hang out hang up and listen to you if that's all right sure so judges 19 uh you know it was took place during a time in human history where twice over in the book of judges the bible says that um people did what was right in their own eyes and so you know, it's it's really a sad time in human history, and I suppose in many respects, that's where we are in America. More and more, it's not what does God say, 
but what do I think? Every person does what's right in their own eyes. And so today, if you come up and you mention something that's sinful, oh, don't judge me. And of course, my answer would be, I'm not judging you. God has made the judgment for me. So someone's living in some illicit sexual relationship, don't judge me. No, God calls adultery wrong. Or someone claims to be transgender or homosexual, don't judge me. I'm not judging you. God has made that judgment, and God has spoken, and he has not stuttered on the issue. So this is somewhat of an armchair question, the chapter 19, but it just shows how depraved and how fallen and how wicked Israel is. And in many ways, it's a, it's a proof for the divine inspiration of Scripture that God would even include this in the Word of God. Because God includes not only the acts that he approves, but even the things that he disapproves. And so for a man to cut up his concubine into 12 pieces and then send a piece to each tribe of Israel, I mean, you talk about depravity, but that's really what was going on at this time in Israel's history. Uh, In reference to your second question, it's a good one. You know, I think churches today want to uh, sometimes reach people for Christ, but they're using a methodology that is not always consistent with what we find in Scripture. And so Bill Hybels, who's now out of the ministry for marital unfaithfulness, he led the way for 30 years in evangelicalism along with Rick Warren, and they put forth before evangelicals a methodology in which to grow churches. And so today, church growth in success in ministry is based on numbers, not really on life change. Numbers may be there, but listen, that's not the way God solely measures his blessing on a church. The question is, are people being changed? Now, if we think that, you know, darkening the auditorium and using a different kind of music is somehow going to bring in people that we would not otherwise reach. Well, you might bring in some people, but the question is, are you bringing in converts? And so that's not what God, you know, promises to bless. Oh, we'll we'll turn the worship service where we'll have some plays and skits and and we'll make it real dark inside and spooky, I guess, and we'll make the music five times as loud and and we're going to bring, you know, people in. Well, you might bring in the world, but the question is, are you bringing in genuine conversions? And even the thought, it's just silly. I mean, it's just silly. We have to have two services. This is the traditional service, so we can satisfy all the old timers. And here's the contemporary service, so we can reach the next generation. The, the thinking is fundamentally wrong. Now, again, I'm not against, you know, new music. There's some great music, great hymns. God says, sing a new song unto the Lord. So there's nothing sacred in singing 16th and 17th and 18th century hymns uh, exclusively. Now, the reason a lot of churches don't sing even hymns like that anymore is because they don't understand them. And the reason they don't understand them is because they're so undertaught and they don't know scripture well enough to appreciate the doctrines that are reflected in that hymn. 
But when you begin to teach God's Word, people then will sing those hymns in a form of worship where they're worshiping God in both spirit and in truth. So what God promises to bless is his word. Think about it for a moment. No one has ever been saved apart from the word of God at any time in human history. Whether it was Adam who had direct revelation, uh, he was saved by a direct revelation from God or Abel whom God says was a man who is justified by faith, who still speaks to us, and God approved his offering and rejected Cain's because one came on the basis of what God had revealed. How did Abel know? Either by direct revelation or through the teaching of his father uh, and mother because God had revealed that the only appropriate way in which to come to God was on the basis of blood, and those blood sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed ultimately to the Lamb of God. My point is no one has ever been saved in all of human history apart from the Word of God. Now, God spoke in many portions and in many ways in times past. Today, we have a completed canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, period. It is the tool. You've been born again, not of perishable seed. Now, I've been born physically of perishable seed. I come from a long line of perishable seed. I was born of Richard John Brogy who was born of Charles Brogy, and if you go back further enough, we'll all go back to Adam. But you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. So the Bible is the Word that acts as a seed. Likewise, the Scripture says, like newborn babes, we are to hunger for the pure milk of the Word. Their milk, not a reference to the simpler teachings of God's words, but the purity of God's Word. Uh, We are to long for the pure milk of the word so that we can grow in respect to our salvation. By the way, James says the exact same truth in echoes that you were brought forth or born again, some newer translations say, by the word of truth uh, so that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So again, he's affirming the spirit of God uses the word of God to bring about conversion And then he tells us that we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, We're to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And in humility, we are to receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The word save is used in three tenses in the New Testament. He had just spoken of salvation in terms of justification. We were, past tense, brought forth by the word of truth. But now he uses a present tense. We usually refer to this as sanctification. And he talks about receiving God's word in a clean heart in humility that is able to save our soul. So here's the problem is pastors no longer really take seriously their call. How do I show my love for Christ? I am to dedicate my life as a pastor to feeding the flock. That's one of my chief responsibilities that God gives me as a pastor. That's hard work. The apostles... While they had a unique office, there are no apostles today. Understand every apostle was a pastor, was an elder, was a bishop of sorts. Uh, Not all pastors are apostles because to be an apostle, you had to have been hand-selected, seen the risen Christ. And if those two things were true, then the signs and wonders that would accompany your apostolic ministry would be affirmed, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. But all apostles are pastors, and so in Acts 6, while it would be noble 
and certainly an expression of servanthood for them to wait upon tables. They said, if we did this, if we took up this daily responsibility, then we would end up neglecting other responsibilities that God has given us, prayer and the study and proclamation of his word. That's what pastors need to get back to. That means you don't spend 20 minutes on Saturday night preparing a message, but you might spend 20 hours during the week preparing a message among the other things that you do. So that when you stand up in the pulpit on Sunday morning, you have something to say. And then you'll see you don't need all this contemporary service nonsense. And you have to have like two generations of people meeting in different worship services. That in and of itself is antithetical to the Word of God. Uh, Some churches, you know, when I first came to Community Bible Church, I was told the mean age was uh, 32 or if I remember and and, um one of the elders was real excited to tell me about that. And I, he said, are you excited? I said, no. I said, that's very unhealthy. That's unhealthy. You're obviously not reaching a cross-section of the community. And God expects the church to be intergenerational. And so there's an assumption in the book of Titus and in First John and other places when he talks about older men teaching the younger men, older women teaching the younger women that it's intergenerational. And so to have two worship services that typically separate the generations, which, you know, there are some rare exceptions where some old guy said, well, I'll go in, I'll listen to the rock and roll music, and I'll just put my earplugs in. And by the way, too, what they're cultivating sometimes with the, merc- with the music style is a appetite for the music of the world. Now, again, you know, there are some Christians who are just kind of bent out of shape, and unless you're singing, you know, 17th and 18th and 19th century hymns, they think you're doing something that's unspiritual, and that's not true. Again, God says, sing a new song, but there are many hymns today that are being written that don't have a spirit of confusion in the beat and in the music, and number two, they are theologically sound. Now, there's a lot of new hymns that are being written, Hillsong. You know, they've got as much heretical stuff going out as they do as they had some good music going out. And now they're, like, way over the edge in terms of some of their theological beliefs. That's how the devil often works. He starts slowly, subtly, looks very orthodox, but with time he, he veers away from the truth. And we see this happening all over America even in different pulpits that are being represented. So, um, you know, you need to be real careful. You're the head of your home. You're the dad. If you have children, you need to make sure that you're in the soundest church that you can be in. And some pastors just need to rethink this thing through. Why, Why do you want to follow Bill Hybels? You know, he's the one who mastered this whole thing, along with Rick Warren. Um, uh, I've got more bad things to say about Bill Hybels than I do about Rick Warren, okay? But why would I want to do that? And then he comes out like five or six years ago and says, we were wrong, we repent. So now for $180, you can buy a little package where we can show you how to really do church. Sounded to me like a sales job. And then as it turns out, you know, he had this problem with women through his whole ministry, and then they finally all came out and and he's out of the ministry today. Why would I want to follow his methodology that produced huge numbers? I went to his church once. I was speaking in Chicago. 
at a uh, rescue mission in downtown Chicago. And I thought, you know, it's, I know they have a Saturday night service. I'm going to go over there and I'm, I'm, I'm going to listen. And they had, you know, this restaurant and you could go and eat after. And it was quite nice. And actually not just one restaurant, but a multiplicity of restaurants within the building. And I sat down at this table with seven or eight people, some who had been going there for years, and they were so far off from the truth of basic sound doctrine, it was absolutely sad. And uh, so think this through. It's important. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you for calling. What can we do to help today? Yeah, I'm related to this uh, question, like, you know, like the trans vestige, and people get upset about the man just like a woman, right? Yeah. So, what's the, so if I compare, if people get upset, so what's, the, like, example, if I compare that to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, you know, concerning the idols and sacrifice unto the idols, Apostle Paul said, what's the big deal? It's just an idol. It's not, you know, it's not the real God or nothing like that. So, so for the same, the same time, People say, if you say something about the transvestite, you're considered a bigot. But imagine if I say to the government, I'll, I'll give you a fake dollar bill. Would, it, well, would, would, would the government be considered to be a, a bigot if I hear this and accept my fake dollar bill? Well, you're talking about counterfeits. And, you know, interestingly, um, the Secret Service, who were originally formed to deal with counterfeit money, and we don't hear much of that today. That's still part of their responsibility. We usually hear of them just in protecting the president and other key people in our government. Uh, But one of the things that they were trained in decades ago was they learned so well what a real bill was like. It's, It's taste, it's feel, it's ink colors, everything, that when a false bill was put in their hand, they could immediately spot it. And sometimes what we do is we spend too much time on dealing with fakes when we need to spend more time on studying the truth. And when you know the truth well enough, then you can immediately spot a fake. In 1 Corinthians, of course, Paul is dealing with uh, different issues. 7-1 is a, a hinge verse in the book, now concerning the things which you wrote me. And so beginning in 7-1... He begins to tick off uh, questions one by one that they had um, asked him. And in 1 Corinthians 8, he's dealing with the issue of Christian liberty and meat sacrifice to idols. And uh, here's take all the air out of the balloon. Uh, What would happen in the first century is in a city like Corinth is someone would take an animal and a portion of the animal was um, dedicated to a false god, and then the rest of the animal would be sold in the meat market. And some of the best meat in a particular city would be the meat that they didn't use in the idol sacrifice. And the question was, well, should should we buy this meat, or what if we show up at someone's table and they are eating this meat that they bought in in the meat market out behind the idol temple, should we eat it? And so those are the kinds of issues that he is dealing with in in First Corinthians, and of course, uh, his point is is that if you knowingly uh, understand that the meat came from a uh, pagan temple, you don't want to give endorsement to that, and so you shouldn't 
participate, lest you become sharers in demons. Uh, just like at the Lord's table, there's uh, a presence of the Lord that is special as we obey the Lord. Even so, there could be in some of these uh, dinners that people had with demonic powers. Again, a true Christian is the first question came up, cannot be inhabited by a demon. But in either case, we're talking about there really what we would call today demon oppression. Um, again, uh, you know, a woman dressing up like a man, you know, God tells us not to do that. Deuteronomy 22, 5, people would say, well, we're not under the law anymore. Look, there's a lot of things that are part of God's law that have not changed. And though they may not be stated specifically in the New Testament, it doesn't mean they have no moral application. It is true that we are under grace and not under law in terms of the fact that the law can never justify a man. But that does not mean that all of the Old Testament laws, many of which are part of God's eternal moral law, are not applicable today. Uh, Nowhere in the New Testament does it say you shouldn't marry your cousin. But God's law spells that out clearly in the Torah, and so people don't marry their cousin or their sister. Uh, God doesn't specifically say that um, today a woman must not wear men's clothing and a man must not wear a woman's clothing for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. That's not found in the New Testament. It's found in Deuteronomy 22, but it still has full application for today, and we need to heed it because it's part of God's moral law. So the culture is forever changing, and what we're seeing in the culture you know, I, I was listening uh, this morning driving into Fox and Friends, and one of the hosts said, what, what is going on in America? It's just like we're changing so fast. I'll tell you what's going on in America. And the answer that they were given was not really the right answer. The answer is from Romans 1, we are being abandoned by God because we are rejecting God. We as a nation have said, we don't want you, God, and you say that long enough to God and enough people say it, then God will let the nation go. And that's where we are at. We have some fundamental moral issues that we have now um, rejected and we've embraced what is evil. And so God is giving the nation over to a depraved mind. Uh, You could render it as in the Slavic languages, an upside down mind, where Isaiah said, woe to you who call good evil and evil good. That's where we're going in America. And so we are reaching a point where if you preach against, you know, transgenderism, if you preach against a text like, you know, 22.5 of Deuteronomy, that a woman should not dress like a man, and we're not talking about a woman wearing pants. That's not what's in view. But we're talking about a woman trying to look like a man and a man trying to look like a woman. Uh, You know, we've got all these, even in South Carolina, You know, we've had these um, library gatherings where you bring in a drag queen, a man dressed up like a woman, and these parents are bringing their little children to educate them, to embrace this evil. This is, like, incredible. Not to mention you've got these parents sometimes who are convincing their five, six, seven, and eight-year-olds that they are the opposite sex that God gave them biologically at their birth. That, that's evil beyond evil, my friend. That is so pathetic. Uh, this whole gender fluidity thing, that is evil beyond evil beyond evil. But that is a nation being abandoned by God. 
And it's not happening just in America now. It's beginning to happen worldwide. And this is what Jesus predicted would happen in the final days before the return of Jesus from heaven. And even Bible prophecy is so neglected in pulpits today. You know, pastors, well, we can't understand it or this or that. Or no, you're called to preach it. And one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And if you're called to preach the whole counsel of Scripture, you cannot ignore Bible prophecy. And it's a wake-up call. It should be uh, something that puts spiritual steel into the spines of God's people to stand strong because God said these days are going to come, and they are upon us. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and a gentleman who visited Community Bible Church last week wants to know whether CBC and First Scots Presbyterian are both solid Bible-believing churches, and what differentiates them? Well, I know the pastor of First Scots Presbyterian. He's a good guy. In fact, I shared the gospel with him when he was a senior in high school, and I didn't, I didn't remember, but when he first moved into town, uh, we had lunch together, and he said, you know, you shared Christ with me as a senior in high school. I think he was going to Buford Academy. I could be wrong on that, and he said, I wrestled with it the whole summer and ended up becoming a Christian. And he loves Christ and loves the Lord. And um, so I would say they're a Bible-believing church. Obviously, I am not of the Presbyterian slant. There are aspects of, and when I say Presbyterian, there's all kinds of Presbyterians in our day, some that are total apostates, just like there are non-denominational churches today that are way over the edge, like Joe Olstein. He's a false teacher. And if you don't know that, you don't know your Bible very well. Oh, there are Presbyterians. We have two Presbyterian churches in Beaufort that are willing and wanting and able to do gay marriages. Obviously, they're apostate. They're wicked. They are evil. Um, This is not in that stripe of Presbyterian. So this is a Bible-believing Presbyterian church. Obviously, I differ with my conservative Bible-believing Presbyterian brethren on a number of issues. Um, I don't practice infant baptism, for instance. I believe in post-conversion baptism. And actually, I have not had a discussion with this pastor on some of these issues. Uh, I don't know where he is on his eschatology, typically. And again, I don't know, so I'm not commenting on First Scots. But typically, uh, conservative Presbyterians teach replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. I don't think that's right. I think it's wrong, and I think it's dangerous to teach that. But if I met someone in town and they said, I want to go to a Presbyterian church that honors the Bible, I would have no problem in sending them to First Scots. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. Doug from Nashua, New Hampshire says, I understand your trip to Israel in September is full. When will the next trip be? Well, it was full. We just had a couple due to serious health reasons, who had to drop off. So we actually have two spots, but it will have to be filled by the end of the week. Uh, So if someone actually wants to go, we have two places, but there's quite a process when you go to Israel today in terms of, one, interfacing with the Israeli government, your passport picture and everything in advance, the background that they do on you. So they're, they're, it's one of the safest places in the world to go. I have a, a rabbi friend who's lived in Jerusalem since he was 18, 
And he says, I feel a lot safer in, in, in Israel than I do in America, uh, just because of all the precautions that they take in terms of um, screening people who even come into the nation. So it would have to be done this week. When the next trip is, we've not set in concrete the dates, but it will probably be 18 months from September, which would be uh, May of 2021, and it will be late in May. So that I did the last one early in May, and I had people, oh, I wish I could have went. Um, you know, uh, we have students in college and graduations, and uh, we even had a professor and his wife who came uh, from the school that he teaches at, Wofford, and he um, he was able to work his schedule where it happened during final week, and uh, they let him do it. Anyway, but it will be late in May, probably of 2021, Lord willing, God knows. So that's kind of where we're headed. All right. I think we've got time for this one question. Ben from Hamilton, Michigan writes, I'm one of your past Marines, so I know all about searching for the right church. I got out of the Marine Corps about two years ago, and we moved to Hamilton, Michigan with my job. We visited a couple of churches, eventually found a great little church where we were welcomed with open arms. The community is awesome. At the time, the church was a satellite campus to a larger Baptist church. I also spoke to the pastor of the larger church and talked through the church's doctrine and beliefs. I found the preaching to be great and the core values to be doctrinally sound. I became the leader of the church's youth ministry. My wife got plugged in right away with the women's ministry, and shortly after, we became members. The pastor was called to another ministry opportunity. We now are transitioning towards completely cutting ties with the uh, with us, uh, paying one-third of the pastor's salary, and uh, or the other church paying one-third of the pastor's salary, and our ties pay the uh, two-thirds. My concern is mainly with this pastor. Um, uh, let's see where it's a long This is a tough pill for my wife and I to swallow, he writes. His preaching is underwhelming, and it feels lukewarm. All sermons are topical, 25 to 30 minutes max, and you see very little growth in the church. No emphasis to bring your Bible, no invitations, no focus on evangelism. The pastor does not address conflict within the church, and multiple families have left or are in the process of leaving because of it. We love the people and the community, but preaching was our number one reason for selecting the church, and now it's not the same church. It could become something great, but right now it's not. So do we see the transition through, find out who God calls to be our permanent pastor, continue to serve and seek to be fed through other means outside the church, or do we run like the wind? (laughs) All right, Ben from Hamilton, Michigan. I think I know who this is. I think this is Ben and Nicole, but I could be wrong. But uh, they, I, I baptized both of them four or five years ago, if I remember. In either case, um, it sounds like this church is in transition, that the mother church that planted it maybe is not overseeing it as carefully as possible. So if I were in that situation, obviously you hate people who just cut and run uh, when sometimes a problem can be addressed and sometimes a, a young pastor who's inexperienced can be helped. And so I would probably, one, go to the current pastor. It sounds like maybe he's an interim pastor going to become a permanent pastor. I don't know. But I would definitely go and speak with him and say, hey, here are some concerns that I have. That's the biblical principle. If you have a problem, uh, go speak to your your brother privately and say, hey, look, you know, um, 25 to 30 minute 
sermons. You know, <laughs> this is something, by the way, I hear a lot. In fact, there was a couple that was just here for our vacation Bible school, and they moved to another city, Marine family, much like Ben, and uh, he's still active duty. And he said, the sermons are about 25 minutes. He said, you're barely out of the introduction by that time. And I said, I know. Um, but they said, but we've done what you said, Pastor. Um, we've gone to these different churches. And I actually recommended the church they were at because from what I could tell, it was the healthiest church in the area. And if there were a better choice, I would point them there. But um, they said, we've done what you've said and we're attending. We are listening to your Revelation series and studying with you because we need to be fed spiritually. We're not really getting it there, but we're also serving. In fact, I asked them, I said, you guys going to be here on Sunday? No, we're doing what you said. We're going back to our church because we've committed ourselves to various responsibilities on Sunday morning. And I was just very encouraged to hear that, uh, that they took seriously what God has called them to do uh, as a couple. And so they were teaching a Sunday school class for younger children. So I would say to Ben, you know, talk to this pastor if he's just like the interim guy, I'd go back to the mother church and say, hey, look, families are, are running. And the distinctives that we first saw when we came here are being lost. And you are still paying a third of this man's salary. Um, do you not have any say or care over what is happening? And that's where I would start. And if you can't reconcile the problem and it's just going to go in this direction. If there's a healthier church that you can attend, then I would go to it. I, I would leave that church. Look, I, I have people all the time, I mean, almost weekly, people who call and they are frustrated. I live in such and such a city, can't find a healthy church, uh, really frustrated, just want a pastor will open the Bible tired of all these, you know, spiritual gymnastics with darkened rooms and floodlights and skits and rock music and 15 and 20 minute topical sermons and with a few Bible verses. I'm tired of that. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. So either A, you find the healthiest church in that community that you can be in and support it, serving it, or with some other like-minded Christians, plan a new church and start meeting in maybe a Bible study. And if you get enough people, uh, there's some people in Greenville right now, and they, they've asked me to help plan a church. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll send you these DVDs, and you guys can have a Friday night Bible study. And if you have a minimum of 30 adults that are coming, excluding children, talk to me. And then we'll, we'll go to step two. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us today on The Bible Line.